Welcome to Sarah's Century, a 12-episode podcast which explores how revolution, war, and immigration affected a single individual. 99-year-old Sarah Mebel left Russia forever on September 11, 2001. This is the story of her life. Episode 1, Introduction to Sarah's Century. In the summer of 1995, I was in St. Petersburg, Russia with my husband, Bob Weinberg, and our six-year-old son. We were subletting an apartment for a couple of months, so Bob and I were both Russian history professors, so we could do some research in St. Petersburg's main library and archives. My husband's elderly relative, Sarah Mabel, whom we call Aunt Sarah, was living in a nearby town, and we went to visit her after we got to Russia. Her place was right near the local tourist attraction, a magnificent palace built in the 18th century for Catherine the Great. Sarah's apartment, two crowded rooms she shared with a married couple, was quite the contrast. Sarah was then 76 years old, and not only was she suffering from all kinds of health problems, she was living on a pension that, thanks to inflation, wasn't worth a whole lot anymore. We'd become really close to her in recent years, and we were worried about how she was doing. Things were pretty bad all around. Russia was a shadow of its former Soviet self. Gone was the great socialist empire lurking behind the so-called Iron Curtain. With the strict censorship from Soviet times lifted, newspapers, magazines, and TV shows were outdoing themselves with ugly revelations about the communist regime how ruthless repression was on the agenda from the very start, how the Soviet leadership brutalized and starved the country's peasants, especially the ones in Ukraine, how the dictator Joseph Stalin imprisoned millions of his fellow citizens and was responsible for millions of deaths, and how state-sponsored brutality persisted even after Stalin died. The contemporary media were also going to town with exposés on problems the Soviet-era press usually pretended didn't exist. Violent crime, sexual assault, domestic violence, prostitution, drug addiction, poverty, homelessness. As for the economy, it was in freefall. All but the few rich men who figured out how to profit from communism's collapse were reeling from the inflation, from unemployment, from unpaid wages, and from the overall chaos resulting from replacing a planned state economy with an ostensibly free market. And in charge of all this was a government led by President Boris Yeltsin, a former communist whose booze-filled antics were a national disgrace. These were scary times, but when Bob asked Sarah how she was holding up, she looked at him and answered, Fine, there is no famine and the Germans aren't invading. Not only did Sarah Mabel live through famine in the 1930s and a German invasion a decade later, the infamous Operation Barbarossa, she was born just a few days before a deadly attack in her town against the Jews, a pogrom. 
and her mother had to hide for several days with newborn Sarah in a freezing cold cellar. When Sarah was in her teens, her father was arrested by Stalin's secret police. He was exiled to Kazakhstan, rearrested, and after that he disappeared entirely. Sarah never saw him again, and she never found out what happened to him, when he died, or even how he died. Because her father was considered an enemy of the people, on top of the pain of her loss, she faced public humiliation and narrowed options for her education and her future. World War II brought more horrors. When the German army was just outside Moscow in 1941, Sarah, along with her fellow Muscovites, had to flee the Soviet capital. While she was waiting for the train that would take her from Moscow to faraway Siberia, German planes bombed the train station. She ran for cover, only to come back and find that someone had stolen all her luggage. With nothing left but a light coat to keep her warm, Sarah traveled in a freight car all the way to Siberia, just in time for a long Russian winter. She spent most of World War II safely distant from the Nazis and the battlefront, but she struggled with the cold and she was often left hungry. After the Red Army's victory, right on the heels of the Nazis' attempt to kill every Jew in Europe, she had to contend with post-war attacks on Soviet Jews by Stalin and his regime. Sarah made it through all this. After Stalin died in 1953, she settled into a more stable and typical Soviet existence. But by middle-class U.S. standards, her life was far from easy. She had to stand in queues for food and goods. She had to fight the authorities to live in an apartment she paid for and supposedly owned. She went through more painful personal losses, and she was always aware that the regime censored what she read and could subject her to some kind of punishment if someone thought she got out of line. But in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. To be sure, there was no famine and the Germans weren't coming but the Soviet safety net that provided health care and pensions for retirees was no longer solidly in place. Even though government repression had been lifted, Sarah still had something to fear because open anti-Semitism was again on the rise. Loud, prominent voices were blaming the Jews for everything going wrong in the present and for everything that went wrong in the entire past. Sarah became afraid she was feeling old, frail, and vulnerable. So in the late 1990s, just before Vladimir Putin came to power, Sarah applied for political asylum in the United States, closing out her plea to American authorities by saying she feared that her life, which began with a pogrom, would end in one. 
Also applying for asylum was the Jewish couple she shared her apartment with. Sarah was all too aware that she was a burden to them, and she knew she had no real place in their household. During a painful international telephone call, she cried her heart out to Bob and me, and we told her she could move in with us. The three of them left Russia on, of all days, September 11, 2001, boarding a Finnair flight to New York. This, Justin, you are looking at obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. The CNN Center right now is just beginning to work on this story, obviously calling our source. There was 82-year-old Sarah flying somewhere over Europe, and suddenly there was an announcement in English and Finnish, neither of which language she understood. But she could see from the other passengers' faces that something terrible had happened. The plane turned around in midair, and instead of landing as scheduled at JFK Airport, newly closed because of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, it flew to Helsinki. When the U.S. government finally allowed flights from abroad back in, she got on another plane and resumed the trip that took her away from Russia forever. On the day Bob and I picked her up in New York City, smoke from the World Trade Towers was still rising over Lower Manhattan. We drove on the Belt Parkway toward JFK Airport and we watched, and we could even smell the smoke. We picked Sarah up at the International Terminal and drove her some 125 miles to her new home, the former dining room we'd converted into a bedroom on the first floor of our house in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. She was thousands of miles from the country she'd lived in for more than 80 years, in every way imaginable. She was a stranger in a strange land. Sarah's been in the United States ever since, and she's been an American citizen since 2008. It's been very tough for her here. She's diabetic, hard of hearing, and she's learned only a few words of English. Most of all, she's felt lonely and isolated. For the last eight years, she's been cared for in a Philadelphia nursing home. She is now 99 years old. Even though her memories have faded and even though worsening deafness makes communication even more difficult for her, she's still amazingly sharp, funny, and capable of being loving and generous. This podcast is going to be about her. It'll take us through some very painful stories, along with, I promise you, stories that are not so painful. Sarah had a lot of joy and satisfaction in her life. She wasn't fully orphaned. She had a loving mother. She had meaningful relationships with friends. She experienced romance and love. And she felt the pride of a Soviet citizen who watched Russia change. From a place where you cooked on a kerosene burner washed yourself in a bucket and went to the bathroom in an outhouse you shared with your neighbors, to a Russia with gas stoves, showers, and private flush toilets. She watched it change from an empire where most Jews lived in crowded, poverty-stricken villages and towns, the shtetls where her parents and my grandparents were born, to a country where all doors were at least theoretically open to Jews. 
She watched it change from a place where sayings like, a hen is not a bird, a woman is not a person, and the more you beat your old lady, the tastier your soup will be. Those kinds of sayings were all too common. She watched it change from that to a socialist regime that at least proclaimed the equality and emancipation of women. Finally, Sarah watched it change from a USSR that got its ass kicked by those invading Germans in 1941 to a victorious nation that drove the German army all the way back to Berlin, called the shots in Central and Eastern Europe, and stood alongside the United States as one of two world superpowers for decades. Sarah was there for it all. And fittingly, in a life shaken by the tremors of history, she had an interesting, fulfilling career as a seismologist who recorded and studied the world's earthquakes. So even though the Soviet regime was the cause of so much heartache in Sarah's life, it also brought her opportunities that never before came the way of little Jewish girls. This one, the granddaughter of Rabbi Lev Mabel, who happened to be my husband Bob's great-grandfather. This was a family of traditional Jews from the Pale of Settlement, the western part of the Russian Empire where Jews were required to live until the fall of the Tsarist regime in March of 1917. Wars and revolutions in the 20th century brought epic changes to Jews in the Pale, and Sarah is one of those Jews whose life was dramatically altered. I wouldn't say that hers was a typical Jewish story, but it's also not that uncommon. If you need a mental picture, think Fiddler on the Roof, and then take Tevye's family into whatever lay ahead when they all left their village of Anatevka for different destinations and different futures. I interviewed Sarah about her life this summer after she moved in, partly to get the family history straight, but also because I thought her story really needed to be told. Her life spanned an entire century, and to me it showed how the highest and lowest points of that century's history affected, even transformed, a single individual. She was a member of a vanishing breed, what we historians dubbed Homo Sovieticus, or the new Soviet person. Sarah and other people with a fundamentally Soviet identity had experiences in a worldview very different from Russians born in the last 40 years, and of course from ours. Her remark about life being fine when the Germans aren't coming and there's no famine is quintessentially that of Soviet citizens who gauge their well-being in terms of whether or not the wolf was at the door. At the same time, she and her fellow citizens had expectations of their government. Homo Sovieticus took certain things for granted. Say what you will about the communist regime of the Soviet Union, but it did ensure that most Soviet citizens had their basic needs met. They expected free health care and free higher education, doctors who would visit them in their apartments, state-funded vacations, plentiful jobs, and a safety net at the bottom of everything. The loss of her father gave Sarah reasons to question the system, but she never became a dissident, a real enemy of the state, although her stepson would. And Sarah never challenged core socialist ideals about equality and social justice. She was a loyal Soviet citizen who only lost her faith when the government failed her by leaving her feeling unprotected in her old age. 
part of becoming Homo Sovieticus entailed ceasing to be Homo Judeus, ceasing to be a Jew. Even though Yiddish was Sarah's first language, at a young age, she went down a seriously assimilationist road, and Russian became the only language she spoke and understood. Not having been given any religious training from her atheist parents, Sarah didn't know from Jewish holidays or Jewish beliefs. She completely lost touch with the expressions, the traditions, and the cultures of generations of her Jewish forebears. Because Russians dominated the Soviet Union politically, culturally, and linguistically, by default, and like millions of others, Sarah essentially became Russian, or at least some kind of Soviet hybrid. Here's a telling example. Even though she wasn't a believer, when Sarah wanted to ward off bad luck, she'd cross herself as though she were a congregant in the Russian Orthodox Church. There you have it all the paradoxes of Soviet-style socialism in one individual. Sarah didn't consider herself Jewish, but strangely, she was sure that everyone else considered her Jewish. But when I asked her why she thought people considered her Jewish, she didn't mention either of these things. She just turned sideways so I could look closely at her profile while she indicated some huge protuberance that I realized was how she saw her nose. What a double whammy of internalized and real anti-Semitism. All the disadvantages of being Jewish with none of the perks. All of the mishigas, none of the joy. Before we go on to look more closely at Aunt Sarah's life, let me just briefly introduce myself. I'm Lori Bernstein, and I'm a history professor at Rutgers University in Camden, New Jersey. I met my husband, Bob Weinberg, in 1979, when we were both graduate students in Russian history at Berkeley. I intended to write a biography of Sarah, but I never got around to it. This was because I became so much a part of Sarah's life, and she of mine, that the story actually became autobiographical. It's become my story, too, and the story of my family. I'm going to do my best to do justice to all of us with this podcast. First recorded session. I started interviewing her a few months after she moved into our house. I recorded our conversations on cassette tapes while I sat at my computer and simultaneously transcribed and translated them. Let me warn you, it's a far from complete account. There are gaps in chronology and narrative because I didn't think to ask certain questions or Sarah didn't remember, or Sarah didn't want to talk about some things. There are inconsistencies because someday Sarah would censor herself and tell a story a particular way. And then on another day, she'd forget the earlier version and change it to something more detailed, or vice versa. Sarah also simplified her answers to make sure I, with my far from perfect knowledge of the Russian language, to make sure that I fully understood what she was telling me. By the same token, my Russian wasn't fluent enough for me to craft complicated questions. I'm still amazed at Sarah's patience with my mistakes and my inarticulateness. And of course, there are the vagaries of time and her flagging memories of events that happened decades earlier. At this point, she doesn't even remember doing the interviews, and she doesn't remember a lot of what she told me. In fact, recently, I entertained Sarah by retelling her one of the stories from her childhood. 
So what I'm going to do in this podcast series is tell you what I know about Sarah's life. My friend and colleague, Julia Zavatsky, thank you, Julia, is going to bring us Sarah's voice and the voice of Sarah's mother. With a couple of exceptions, everything Julia says will be a direct translation of something Sarah told me during our recorded conversations. Bob's and my stories about Sarah will also figure in the podcast. What we've witnessed and what we've learned about our understanding of this country have given us an ongoing education about what it means to be an immigrant, especially an elderly one, and about the cultural clash between Russians and Americans. A lot of these stories are pretty funny, like the time Sarah insisted she saw elk in our suburban Philadelphian backyard, even after we told her they were actually deer. Why would there be deer so close to a city? In any case, what we've got here is my rendition of the story of her life based on the experiences of my family and according to the memories Sarah shared with me. But even to her, they seemed unreal, far away. As Sarah also put it, Maybe I made this up, but no one could make something like that up. Sarah Century is created, written, and produced by Laurie Bernstein. Robert A. Evans Jr. assistant produced, recorded, sound designed, edited, and mixed the episodes, with assistant editing and mixing by Anthony Diaz, and additional help by Maggie Montalto at Rutgers University Camden. The series opening music is Russian Dance by Yer Yona, and the ending credits track is The Situationists by the FWB. Additional music for our series is by Pottington Bear and others, and is sourced from the Free Music Archive using Creative Commons licensing. Visit our website for each episode's full music credits. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and rate Sarah Century on iTunes. You can get more information and the full episode's credits about this and other episodes at sarahcentury.blogs.ruckers.edu. Our website, created by Kate Blair at Rutgers Camden's Office of Web, New Media, and Design, contains supplemental material like photos, artifacts, letters written by Sarah and others, and a family tree. Because the writing of history is an ongoing enterprise, you can also find updates and corrections as part of our ongoing quest to document Sarah's story. Special thanks to Julia Zavatsky, who brings us the beautiful voice of Sarah. With just a few exceptions, Everything Julia says in the podcast is a direct quote from taped interviews or letters. Thanks also to support from the Digital Studies Center at Rutgers University Camden and to the Rutgers Camden Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. This podcast would not be possible without Bob Weinberg, cousin to Sarah and husband to Laurie. Sarah's Century is dedicated to Sarah Zalevna Mebel, survivor extraordinaire to whose life we tried to do justice 